Life is a struggle for joy every step of the way. May I fight that battle and win the battle of joy on the very spot where I now stand. This is one of my very favorite quotes from Yoganandaji. Life is a struggle for joy every step of the way. And why is that? Well, Jyotish has explained it so clearly that this world is set up in such a way, a perfect, perfect setup, that our happiness is always just beyond our reach. There's the story from the Indian uh, scriptures from the life of uh, baby Krishna, Gopala, when he was a naughty boy and his mother was trying to do the housework and he was always disturbing her. So she found a piece of rope and she tied him, tried to tie him up to this pillar. I don't want anybody complaining about child abuse. That's not the point of this story. She tied him up, but the string was just a little bit too short. And so she went and got a longer string and she tried to tie it and it was still too short. And on and on it went because we can't contain the joy of God by our own will. We can't contain it. It's not to be found in this world. As Jyotish said, this world is sukadukadam, the abode of alternating pain and pleasure. So then where will we find happiness if the motivation of every single bit of creation from a plant to a rock to a butterfly to a bird to a deer to a tree to you and me, if all of our motivation is to find happiness, how, where will we find it and how do we do it? Well, we will find it, as Jyotish has been saying, in the calm center of our own being. It will not be found anywhere else. It will not be found by excitement and, and turbulent emotions. Only when we find that calm center of our own being, as Swami was talking about, the neutralization of the vortices. Well, you know, we've heard that so often, but really all, and we dismiss it. Oh, yeah, okay, neutralize the vortices, okay. <laughs> but what we're saying here is to find that center, no matter what is going on, that's the point. It could be great, it can be terrible, but to live in that calm center no matter what. And now the question is, Jyotish gave us some very profound spiritual techniques, but I want to talk about how we do it in our daily life. Some years ago, I was going through a period where there was a situation that was <clears throat> causing me a lot of worry. And I would worry as I went to sleep, and I would worry, wake up in the middle of the night and worry about it, and I would worry about it when I woke up, and I would worry about it during the day, sort of like the opposite of the game of the minutes. <laughs> it was just try, and it was with me. It was this ongoing thing. And then finally I realized this is taking over my life, this worry. And I said, I've got to take charge here. So if we want to find lasting happiness, we need to know how to deal with the worries that howl at us. And what I came to was, I have got to take charge 
And let me imagine the worst possible outcome of this situation, just the sum of all my fears, as they say. And let me go there. And then let me try, in the midst of that, to find a calm center of peace, no matter how bad it is. And you know, I could do it. I could imagine the worst case scenario, and I thought, I can live with that. I can still be a devotee. I can still feel God's presence. I can still find that calm center within myself. And I just began relaxing with it. And from that moment, the situation began changing and improving and turned around. So it's a very interesting cause and effect. The law of magnetism. You worry about something and there it is following you wherever you go. You say, get thee behind me. I, not, I am not going to be kicked around by these troubles that plague my life. I am master of myself. And you cut the cord that ties that situation to you. It was really a remarkable experience when I took charge of that. There's a, a very interesting book called When Things Fall Apart by a, a Buddhist nun, Pema Chodin. And she talks, I mean, it's a great title, When Things Fall Apart. Not if things fall apart, but when they fall apart, because they will. And he, she said, if in those moments, when everything around us that seemed secure and good and happy that we've worked and strived for, if it's all taken away, she said, if we can approach it, not with worry, not with fear, but with openness and with curiosity. What's going to happen next? This is a free fall. I remember some years ago when Ananda was being built, we went over to someone's house that was under construction, and they had a deck off their, uh, it was a two-story structure, and there was a deck off their living room. And I didn't know that there wasn't a railing around the deck, and it was very dark. And I just stepped off, and for a matter of seconds, I just was in a free fall. And I didn't know how far it was, and I didn't know how long I was going to go down. But thank goodness there was a moment of calmness where I just said, this is interesting. And <laughs> boom, I landed right on my feet. And I walked back in, and I was a little surprised. But if in those moments when it's all falling apart, if we can just have the openness and curiosity and just to say, I will not allow worry to dominate my consciousness. Master gave a wonderful image. He said, worries are like swarms of insects. Don't they feel like that sometimes? And we have to kill them with the chemical of our peace, calmness, and happiness produced in the laboratory of meditation through, uh, acquired, and peace acquired through facing countless tests. So the more you do it, the more you know how to do it. There was some years ago, a woman came to Ananda. She was the head of another spiritual organization, and she was having tea with Swami Kriyananda. And she, he, we were talking about Ananda and how it's developed, and she said, how do you appoint ministers here? And Swami said, well, we have to observe people over time. 
And she said, oh, you mean you have to make sure they know the teachings and that they're good lecturers and so forth. And Swami said, no, not at all. We have to see that even in the middle of their own personal tests, if their first instinct is to think of others, and if they do, then they are worthy to be ministers. And so another way to achieve this last true happiness, just as with worries, we have to go beneath the surface and find the calmness there, neutralize the vortices consciously. So if we can put others first in our life, no matter what we're going through, and you know, in this Ananda community, I really have to honor the great souls that I live with every day and that I see in the mailroom and that I bump into in the market and who are sitting all around you this morning because there are souls who have lived this to the depth of their being in sore tests and trials. I remember some years ago there was a very dear friend of mine who was an Ananda minister whose son, adult, young adult son, was killed in a tragic accident. It was a great loss to her. She loved him dearly. And he was a friendly, easygoing guy, had lots of friends. And in this very amphitheater, we had a memorial service for him. And the, all the seats virtually were filled with his friends. And they were emotionally very disturbed, very upset. Many, many young people in their early 20s, they were sobbing and sobbing and couldn't get control of themselves. And my friend was going to be leading this memorial astral ascension service for her son. And she, I passed her as I was taking my seat, and she said, pray for me. This is going to be the hardest thing I've ever done. And she got up here, just where I'm standing, and she put herself totally aside, and she comforted every one of those kids that was, not kids, young adults, that was crying and lost in grief. And she said, he wouldn't want you to be sad. His whole life was a celebration about joy. And let's honor him and remember him in that joy. And in that ceremony, it was one of the most profound and inspiring moments I have ever experienced at Ananda. And so eloquent, because she was living she was living the teachings. It wasn't something she picked up in a book or that she heard on a tape. She was living them. And I felt God's presence more powerfully that day than I have had often in my life. So to think about others, no matter what's going on. There was, I remember a story that Mother Trace of Calcutta told when there was a terrible famine. There had been a drought and a famine in the state of Bengal. And hundreds and thousands of people were starving. And they were able to bring some food. And people would come, and they would give them a little packet of rice. And they gave it to one woman who had many children who were starving. And she immediately divided it in half, gave half to her. She said, I will give half of this to my neighbor whose children are also starving. And what is the power of that? To divide 
when you don't think, it doesn't seem like you have enough to give strength and hope and courage to people when you don't have it yourself. It's that power that says, there is a place within me that's not touched by any of this, that I can claim and I can stand in that peace and happiness. And in that, we, we find that joy that nothing can touch, nothing can take away. There's a, a story that some of you may know. There's a wonderful book. I'm going to take a drink of water called The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. And Corrie and her elderly father and sister were lived in Holland during the Second World War. And they were Christians, but in their compassion and sense of humanity, they harbored and hid Jews and helped who were being sought out by the Nazis to um, and help them escape. Well, finally, someone betrayed them. And Corey and her sister Betsy, who was a, they were all very, very devout Christians, and their elderly father were all arrested and put in concentra concentration camps themselves. And her father didn't live very long in that situation. But Betsy and Corey, Corey's telling the story, just no matter what happened, and they were brutal guards, and they were brutalized and starved and worked beyond human endurance, but they never lost their faith. And finally, Betsy died. Her older sister died. Corey survived. And when the war was over, she was able to go out, and she started a mission, and she wrote a number of books. One was called Tramping for the Lord, and she talked about how she spread what they learned of not losing your faith, no matter how difficult it becomes. And she was out giving a lecture one day, one evening, about never forgiveness and love and acceptance and faith in God. And after the lecture, a man approached her. And at first, she didn't recognize him. And then as she looked more carefully, she realized that he was one of the most brutal guards in the prison that was very much responsible for the death of her beloved sister. And he was weeping. And he said, can't you forgive me? And at first, the human part of her recoiled and thought, how can I forgive him? How can I not remember what happened? But then that part of her that was rooted in God opened her arms and embraced him. And he sobbed and sobbed on her shoulder. And she knew, she said, in that moment, I felt the presence of Christ more than I had in any moment. Because Christ, after all, there he was on the cross. And he could say, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And so forgiveness is such an elemental part of finding happiness. So many of us go through lives remembering past hurts. This happened and that happened. You know, we, in the last couple of weeks, we had two very um, dear friends who made their transition and left the body, Tim Kretzman and Leela. 
And it was a loss for all of us. They were dear, dear friends and family members and so forth. But it was also so beautiful watching them make their transitions because you could see the layers being peeled off. This doesn't matter, and that doesn't matter, and so what if he said this and she said that? And at the end, when we went to see Leela after she had left her body, her, she was so beautiful. She was so beautiful. She, it was, you could feel that she had had ultimate release. I don't know stages of this or that or the other, but there was this profound sense of freedom because she had forgiven and she had let it all go. And, and we need to look at every area of our life that we're holding on to something. It's sort of like when you have a loose tooth and you keep wiggling it with your tongue. Just look at your life. Look what little areas of worry or, or holding on to past hurts. And just say, this is a veil over my happiness. And if I want to be happy all the time, I have to find that place in myself that's not touched by any of this, where the vortices are still. And I know I can go forward, and none of it will matter. And so each one of these attitudes, the common thread that we're trying to describe, is we can come to a place where that joy exists in stillness, in calmness, in remembrance. And there's a beautiful story of a Muslim woman saint, Rabia. And she was a great mystic and very close to God. And towards the end of her life, she was suffering from a ravaging illness. And one of her disciples said, Mother, he is no true lover of God who isn't willing to suffer for the love of God. And even in her dying hour, she said, that smacks of ego. And the disciple was surprised. And then another one tried to pick up the baton and run with it and said, Mother, he is no true lover of God who isn't happy to suffer for God. She paused and she said, better, but that still smacks of ego. And then they bowed to her and they said, Mother, you tell us, what is the right attitude? And she said, he is no true lover of God who doesn't forget himself in the love of God. And ultimately, if we want to be happy all the time, we have to walk that beautiful path where all that exists is love for God. You know, a man came to Master uh, for an interview so when he was still in the body, and he said, the man was kind of filled with himself, and he said, he had all these questions, and so he asked Master some questions, and Master said, love God. And then he went back to his notes, and he looked through, and he found some more questions, and the man said, and Master said, love God. And then the man still thought, well, this guy's not getting it. And so he went back and he asked all these very erudite questions. And Master said, with the power of his being, he said, love God. And he walked out and closed the door. And the man was left very confused. But 
if we want to be happy all the time, we need to know, we need to put God first. And whatever happens in our life, and no one's life is without tests and trials, not one of us in this room, in this amphitheater. And yet if we keep moving forward, just saying, God, this is all from your love. You made this gift for me of illness or unhappiness or poverty or whatever it might be. You gave this to me out of your love and I will cherish it. You know, there was the story of the rather odd guru who, when the disciples would come for darshan, he would take up bricks and he would throw them at them and he'd say, get out, get out. And they would all flee, but the wise ones would come back and they would take the bricks. And when they brought them home and put them on their altar, the bricks turned into gold. Well, whether this is literally true or not really doesn't make any difference. It is certainly true spiritually that if whatever the guru throws at us or lays lovingly on our lap, if all of it, and all of it, we say, thank you, Master. These are ways that we can find how to be happy all the time because we're living in that calm center that nothing can change. The ground can't be crumble under us. The rug can't be pulled out from under us. We live in the assurance because we've put God first. There's a beautiful quote from the autobiography of a yogi where Master says, to allot God a secondary place in life was to me inconceivable. I couldn't imagine, in other words, putting God second. Though he is the sole owner of the cosmos, silently showering us with gifts from life to life, one thing yet remains which he does not yet own and which each human heart is empowered to withhold or bestow, man's love. And so this is the choice in front of us. Do we choose to put God first? Because if we do, all these things will be added unto us, not in a mercenary way, not because we'll get a parking place, but because by putting God first, we know that is the answer to all of the questions, all of the problems that plague us in life. If we want to be happy all the time, we need to choose to give our love to God. The secret of laughter lies in the laughing, not in the search for joy. It's a swallow winging on the wind, it's innocence in a boy. Laughter lies in things, to things you'll be but a slave. Lula, 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 lula. 
in the giving, not in the gaining, grasp and you'll never sing. You could win the world and still be poor, win peace and live like a king. Tempest sees the lightning flash and ride the winds of change. 